Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. Today's episode is sponsored by the Capital Employed podcast. The Capital Employed podcast is a great resource to learn about investment funds, companies, industries, and for finding new investment ideas. Each week, the host talks to renowned equity investors, both professional and private, about their favorite stocks. So if you're seeking new investment ideas, we suggest you search for Capital Employed Podcast on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. That's the Capital Employed Podcast, available on all major podcast platforms, like the one you're using now. More information can also be found at capitalemployed.fm. That's capitalemployed.fm. And our very special returning guest is Akhil Patel from PropertyShareMarketEconomics.com. Akhil has professional experience in audit, central government, and international banking. Akhil became interested in economic cycles during his school years when he came across Henry George's Progress and Poverty, which explained why economies go through periods of boom and bust. Later on, he witnessed the negative effects of not understanding economic cycles when his family's business went through difficult periods during the major recessions in the early 1990s and during the global financial crisis after 2008. He became determined to develop a body of work that would help people, whether they were investors, business owners, or those just interested in doing something with their savings, to grow their wealth or manage their affairs through the course of these economic cycles. So welcome back to the show, Akhil Patel. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely brilliant. Just to remind people that you were on about a year ago on episode 103, and um, you were bullish for the markets. You have long-term cycle outlook. And maybe if you could just give us a recap of your method of analysing the markets and um, your, a bit about your background, and then you can tell us what you think of the markets. Okay. Um, well, so... I mean, the overall cycle is about an 18 to 20 year cycle um, consisting of approximately 14 years of expansion and four years of things going really down, uh, crash, uh, banking crisis, currency crisis, um, and uh, uh, an extended period of recovery. And the 14 years of expansion is divided roughly into two seven-year halves interrupted by a mid-cycle recession. Um, and you see it most uh, obviously in the property market because um, indeed the cycle is itself driven by um, speculation in real estate. So what tends to happen is the economy is bubbling along very nicely. Property prices are going up in some cases, in, you know, in some areas maybe rather significantly. Um, but at some point, usually in the second half of the cycle, things really kind of kick in, go over the top. Um, the economy gets squeezed, you know, it can only take um, house prices at a certain level in relation to earnings and so on. Banks are fully loaned up on uh, property lending for both residential and commercial real estate um, and is quite vulnerable to a shock in the property market, which you inevitably get when property prices uh, come down. Uh, and that creates a banking crisis and the economy is starved of credit. Um, and then you get a general economic recession. How, how far off do you think we are from that um, moment? Uh, so we are emerging out of the mid-cycle recession. And I've sort of fairly consistently predicted that the peak of the cycle would be 
um, around 2026. So we've got so, several more years of boom then, effectively. We've got several more years of boom. So if you're a value investor and, and thinking that share prices are already ridiculously valued and so on, then the, get, get, the get, next get, get, years. get used to it. <laughs> yes, I mean, one thing I'd say, though, is that it's not, you know, I mean, the other side of the kind of pricing stories of course what earnings do and and during a boom i mean certain sectors do very well and so earnings grow quite quickly and so maybe valuations start to look a bit more reasonable one amazing thing about the property market is how resilient it was to the coronavirus i mean especially perhaps you could tell us how commercial property has, has done because that must have just got decimated whereas it seems that residential property, residential's powering ahead. It's still. just incredible how strong it is, and it actually is testimony testimony to what you're saying here about there being long term cycles at play because that always happens when the market just shrugs off really negative news because it's obviously looking at some some longer term situation or cycle. I mean, that's I mean, it's a good question. So. Um, I just say that the equivalent point last cycle was around 2001. And, you know, I mean, the UK technically avoided a recession. The US had one. But, you know, we had some pretty negative events around 9-11 and uh, the dot-com sort of bust and also all these accounting scandals, which really brought um, sh- uh, stock markets down very significantly for a couple of years. Uh, but during that time, the property market uh, was relatively strong. I mean, it responded well to interest rates being being cut um, and a lot of the money that came out of the stock market went into the property market. We have had something similar this time, though, for different reasons. Um, I mean, you're right. Residential property has done well, uh, partly because, um, you know, there were, we didn't have the general economy-wide speculative boom in, in housing um, uh, in the 2010s. I mean, I know that, you know, London went sort of pretty crazy in some areas and so on. But in general, you know, a lot of England and Wales and Scotland prices were below where they'd reached in 2007, uh, etc. So uh, what was clear, I think, was that between about 2017 and 2019, there was a lot of there was a lot of demand, but people weren't actively looking in the markets, uh, maybe because they were worried that interest rates might start rising, or maybe they wanted to see what um, the new kind of trading arrangements with the EU would tell to be. So I think the first few months of 2020 was, um, you know, really quite a big month in January and February for property prices. Showed there's a lot of pent up demand. And then, of course, on top of that, the government put in place a lot of schemes to support people buying houses. Um, and so that's really caused the market to to race away. I think once those measures are reversed, prices may, or at least growth in prices may um, uh, slow down a little bit, but I certainly don't see it falling. Um, commercial real estate is a different proposition. It's not as big a part of the story as residential because it's, it's a much smaller market. Um, and I think, you know, I think the jury is still out. There's there's going to be a bit of a shakeout because clearly there's a lot of rent arrears and other things, um, and that will affect valuations. But um, you know, city centres having been emptied during the pandemic are now starting to you know life is starting to return. And indeed, my understanding is in some of the large city centres, very large tech companies were buying you know increasing their office footprint quite substantially. Um, And I can see a situation whereby, you know, old commercial buildings are being repurposed for new uses. Um, You know, they might, 
there might be better facilities, there might be more space in them. Uh, and so actually, while you know some businesses might be permanently shuttered or they might not need uh, the space that they did in in the places that they did before, um, overall demand might not be that negatively affected. There's also been quite a significant increase in um, demand for certain types of uh, commercial real estate, like uh, you know premises for logistics, for example, because you know online shopping is here to stay very much, and they need to be stored relatively close to centres of population. And my understanding is that they can, uh, sorry, you know these out of town, um, uh, what do you call those things? You know, you have sort of next and these anchor re- retail parks and so on. Yeah. Um, they can quite easily be repurposed as logistics centers. So there's been a quite a significant demand for things like that. So I'm not really sure how all of it will play out. Um, but I certainly don't think there's there's going to be a collapse in the commercial real estate market. There might be, you know, changes and quite significant ones, but um, you know, uh, but the demand is there. What do you look for for long term um indicators in when it comes to interest rates? Would that be long 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 term bond yields or, or something else? Um, yes, I mean, long-term bond yields, um, I, so I tend to sort of, I, I tend to break the cycle down into, you know, as I said, seven year halves in the terms of 14 year expansion. Um, and I, I'm always of the view that, um, the central banks are behind the curve, well behind the curve. Uh, and so I don't, I tell the first part of the expansion or each half of the expansion, I don't really pay too much attention to interest rates. Um, but you know, the ones that are really sensitive as you as the expansion takes hold um, are kind of property developers uh, and certain house building companies. And they mm. always peak before the broader market when you get to the peak of the cycle because interest rate costs are such a significant portion of their overall cost base. And, and then the other, the other most significant thing is, of course, the land. Um, and so... Uh, that can be a very, very good lead indicator. For so you'd be looking at the share prices of the listed businesses or their CDS spreads? Uh, yeah, I mean, both. Uh, but um, share prices is very good. Actually, uh, a lot of them, so to take the example of the peak of the last cycle in 2006, 2007, uh, the broader markets, uh, I think, peaked in July or October 2007. But a lot of uh, house building stocks were well off their mm. two, early 2007 highs, and in some cases, some of them topped out in 2006. Uh, and for me, that was you know six month advance warning. We should the peak of the market was was coming. We should really explain what CDS prices are, Tim, because that might be something that people don't know. Yeah, just, so credit default swap, which is basically just uh, insurance against. Uh, so every um, every issuer of a bond, the 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 bond that bond yield trades that are spread above the, the risk-free rate, which is that pertaining to either UK government bonds or in the US US Treasury debt. So that that's known as the spread. And credit default swaps effectively enable you to hedge against the the the, the, the spread on a on a bond issued blowing out to indicate that the that that borrower is becoming less and less solvent. Yeah. So it's like the cost of insurance insuring that bond and Obviously, you can imagine when the bond goes into distress, the cost of that insurance goes up very quickly. And the market is very sensitive to information. And you can get an early steer about whether something's in trouble by looking at the CDS price, sometimes more than the share price. But share prices are very sensitive. I, 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 Akil may disagree, but I would humbly suggest that the bond market, generally speaking, is a better indicator of, I think, bond people are better educated than equity people. 
not, not, uh, to, quite sound, possibly. not to sound sexist or racist. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite uh, possibly. I mean, the other things that I look at, I mean, I mean, it's slightly more controversial indicator these days, the inversion of the yield curve, of course, but also the spread between triple B and triple A tends to kind of blow up um, uh, before before a peak in the cycle. Some pretty smart I think people. I, I think I, sorry. sorry to interrupt, Paul. I was going to say I, th- I think I saw recently that that I mean it's a slight, slight, slight sort of handbrake turn in the topic, but that I think it was five-year Greek paper had gone negative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which um, is a sign of think th- things are fairly frothy in the credit markets right now. Well, that that yeah. was that was the point I was about to ask about. The there are some pretty smart people, Tim and um, I. I believe uh, the uh, evil Knievel who writes for Master Investor is talking about UK yields, uh, long-term bond yields going up and government paper perhaps falling. So I wondered how much that would derail your 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 view, whether you actually kind of steer it towards um, changing your outlook given that something is coming in from the side that you didn't expect or whether you just stick with these cycles and because to remain bullish given all this information is 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 kind of it's a, quite very, a statement it's quite, it's a quite statement. i mean it, i love it i mean I, I have to say i'm really impressed especially given that you 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 did all this work during some recessions which were clearly very negative on your your family's business as you say in your uh, in your bio, so, and that I think would make somebody be more sensitive to the negative side than the than bullish on the positive side, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, though to be fair, I mean we all as investors have uh, the regret that if only we had bought then. Uh, yeah. So, so the bullish sort of side of it is also partly about that. You know, you, everyone would have loved to have bought central London property in two thousand nine. Um, Dominic, uh, but, Dominic Frisbee has just just released his latest single, which is FOMO, Fear of Missing Out. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, the, the, the FOMO really kicks in the final couple of years of the 14-year expansion, which I was talking about, so, I mean, really in a major way. So there's an English economist called Fred Harrison who's written quite a lot about this American economist called Henry George. Um, and he said that that's the winner's curse phase because everyone is competing um, – to buy assets, and of course um, they're getting close to the peak of the cycle, so it's kind of a curse to beat off the competition in that scenario. Um, uh, so to to the question about, I mean, the thing is, if you and I, when I talk about the cycle, I mean, you can you can trace the cycle as my friend Phil Anderson has done um, back to eighteen hundred in the U.S. and he's written a kind of effectively U.S. economic history through the lens of this eighteen year cycle. From, from 1800, breaking each one down into various components and showing. I mean, the cycle is repeated in times of very high inflation, very low inflation, very high interest rates, very low interest rates, um, uh, the middle of a Cold War. Um, uh, the mid-cycle in 1920 was preceded by the First World War and then a, you know, a really major global pandemic um, and so on. So there's by definition, there's always going to be something different uh, that you haven't thought of. And, you know, I'm going to be somewhat blindsided by something. Um, you know, it's entirely possible that I'll say the peak is going to be in 2026. Uh, and actually, a, a bit like the 1920s, when the land market peaked in 1926, but the property, uh, sorry, the stock market peaked in 1929, there'll be three years of me looking a bit stupid. Um, 
uh, and calling a crash and, and it not sort of happening. Um, so uh, presumably you're looking at, let's say, moving averages rather than a spot price of a given index or price. Is that is that right? Um, you're looking at some kind of smooth assessment of a of a of an index or some kind of measure of you know, comparative prices. Yes, yes. So uh, I mean, I usually, I mean, if, if you, um, I mean, I have a chart actually, which I'm happy. I think I might have sent it to you last time. I'm happy to send it again. Um, I yeah, I I actually do percentage change from the start of the cycle to the end. Right, right, right. right. Uh, but so you can compare across different cycles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, moving averages, edge scores, all that kind of stuff. You could, it could, it would show pretty much the same thing. Um, sorry, now I've lost my train of thought. Sorry, it's my fault. No, that's okay. What was I talking about? Um, yeah, what's what's new about this cycle? I mean, yes, I suppose we've never had prolonged negative bond yields. Um, uh, I don't previously. I mean, we might have had. Um, we've never also had a, a government mandated shutdown of the entire economy. No, not. That's absolutely right, though there have been examples of more localised ones from the US in the 19th century. Um, On the other hand, the response to that is all is kind of counteracts that. So the government, the the infrastructure spend, infrastructure spend, and also the fact that basically the government, at least temporarily, paid for us to keep the party going Mm. while we're sitting at home. If you you see what I mean, so. I mean, now that wouldn't, I don't think that's going to last much longer. You know, I think people are now well and truly bored of sitting at home and looking at their computer screen. Um, and so, but, you know, the, the response to something that we've never had has also been unprecedented in the other direction. And I think, you know, frankly, all of this money will end up somewhere in the land market. And in fact, you could argue that it already has. I mean, the biggest item of the household budget is, you know, mortgage interest and rent. Um, and uh, and so furlough payments have essentially gone straight into the pockets of of the people who are, uh, own the land. It, you know, mm. might well be the you know person who's also occupying it, but in many cases it's not, uh, or it's it's the bank in terms of interest payments and, and principal repayments. So pretty much most economic policy, I think, in some way or another, uh, is designed to keep the cycle turning. Um, and the government, you know, you'd have to say, and I'm, this is not a commendation, has been rather effective at doing it this time. Uh, can, and then, can, can the government prevent a, a residential property collapse if, it, if, if that's, if that's going to happen? How, how powerful is the role of government and the central bank in, 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 in reflating or supporting prices when the market wants to go another way? Um, now that I think is a really good question, and I'm not sure. So I, th- I mean, because I think- history, history would suggest that it can't ultimately happen, because otherwise we'd, the, the housing market would only ever go in one direction. But it clearly has corrections from time to time, the same way the stock market does, uh, and quite significant ones. So, so I think that there's probably two ways to answer that question. The first is whether, in aggregate, you know, over a period of time, it can support the housing market. I think the answer is yes. The question then is, does it intervene quickly enough? Um, and can, or can it kind of work out how to intervene to stop a collapse? And I think the answer to that is no. Firstly, I mean, government policy tends to be behind the curve, I think, uh, in general. Um, and, you know, developing these schemes are not 
particularly easy. And if you've got a situation where, you know, for example, we've had a major construction boom across the UK and across America and, and Europe and and so on. I mean, by definition, as a construction boom, which is you know one of the things that drives the cycle and drives real estate prices as prices get higher, people move to different areas to build you know new buildings and new houses. Um, th- they become increasingly marginal. Uh, projects because you know it's all very well building lots of buildings in central London there's always going to be demand for for central London property because it's a very large centre of population people moving in and out but when you start to go to secondary and tertiary cities the business case becomes that much more marginal Uh, and but you know during a boom people tend not to uh, sort of really understand the dynamics the a forecast of you know demand is much higher than the actual reality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but a booming market will hide all that because people tend to pay, you know, what's being asked for. Uh, and so, uh, I think the government wouldn't be able to intervene in the case where basically there is a lot of overhang of capital investment, uh, which simply doesn't have a solid foundation behind it. Um, what it obviously does, you know, you you'd say. Cities post Second World War is it intervenes fairly quickly to save the banking system um, from outright collapse, uh, and it, what that does is enables banks eventually to offload all this real estate um, uh, lending at relatively kind of par value. So that takes why well, it takes several years because firstly you've got to reduce interest rates, uh, quell the panic, um, uh, then you've got to kind of somehow stop the property market falling so you introduce sort of uh, measures to in, uh, kind of boost demand and then banks you know you nationalize some banks or you you know force them to uh, to be taken over by another bank um, and that process will allow banks quietly to offload a lot of real estate or in some cases it's taken onto the central bank's uh, balance sheet um, and that's what uh, that's the sort of process so in a sense the government does um save the housing market but it doesn't save it in a time when you know of course it causes a lot of people to default and uh, lose a lot of money because um probably the most volatile asset that that, that there is 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 land i mean the, the raw land on which all of our housing sits i mean in some cases can go to negative pricing if you know um if uh, the the price of the house is uh, lower than the reinstatement value i mean it's do you, do you have- negative land price do you have a, a view? I mean, one of the, the, the most striking trends in asset markets over the last six months or, or longer has been the, the rise in commodities. Do you have a view on the commodities market? Yeah, I do. So at the moment, it seems to be coming off after the sort of pretty major spike um, that it has in the uh, sort of last six months. Um, you know, it will find a floor at some point. Um, I've actually written a couple of forecasts around that maybe later this year or, or next year. So there are, you know, other longer term commodity cycles as well. Uh, but what you tend to find in the second half of each real estate cycle is, is enormous demand for commodities, um, mm. uh, you know, particularly industrial kind of metals, uh, anything to build. Lumber. You know, lumber, copper. I mean, the housing uses a lot of copper. Um, and added to that, you know, with, the, the shift to kind of green energy and so on, there's going to be demand for other types of commodities. And of course, you know, the internet and 5G and all the rest of it. Um, so long-term, yeah, I think a very strong outlook for commodities. Um, I suppose the main 
question is what role will oil prices play within all of that? And I'm not really entirely sure. I'm, I think maybe the day of $140 a barrel oil, uh, we might not see that again, but you know, potentially oil will also have a pretty strong run. Um, you know, if we kind of take off a lot of supply capacity, um, as we can then overdo it, you know, you could kind of see oil prices having a, having a bit, having a bit of a run in that scenario. It would be unusual for it to not go up if everything else is, especially if there's a lot of economic activity. Exactly. And, you know, uh, frankly, most, most of our transportation and other things is, is based on oil. So for the time being, what about, what about, what, what about currencies? Do you have a? I mean, the 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 the, the skeptic in me wonders whether if you've got all these things inflating, mm-hmm. then there has to be a, almost a counteraction on the part of the value of certain currency. I mean, I appreciate not the every dollar. currency can move it. Yeah, so effectively the yeah. dollar then, is, yeah. for want yeah. of a better for want of a better candidate. Um, if everything's going up, then effectively something has to be countering that, and that's basically a depreciation in the value of the dollar, the real yeah. value of the dollar. Yeah, totally. Yeah, fully expect that. So. Um, I mean, partly for as a you know, I think fairly obvious response to all this enormous um, money printing. Oh. Um, but uh, I mean, there's always something. So there's I mean, it, the history of uh, so from a historical perspective, I don't have as much evidence because um, you know, freely floating currency is not a not a very long term phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but for the last three cycles, the last few years into the peak have involved the dollar depreciating quite substantially um and you know for what i can tell and i do a bit of technical analysis for what i tell the uh, dollar is you know once it breaks 89 i think it will go down quite significantly and that you know tends to be quite good for global gdp it tends to be very good for uh, emerging markets tends to be very good for commodities um and uh, so you can certainly see that fitting into the kind of overall cycle picture that i've tried to paint I wanted to come back to the property market because I think we've got a very interesting situation going on, especially with the the um, coronavirus situation with people coming out of main cities and, and wanting to be in the countryside. Do you think that that trend will continue or do you think it will reverse as people look at prime London location and, and just want to get back to perhaps where they were before and and that you can have too much of a good thing is what I'm trying to say. You can be in the country. Personally, I I quite like it, but I don't think I'd like to stay there. I'd like to be in amongst the, the hustle and bustle, um, which hopefully will come back. Which hopefully come back. (laughs) Yes. Um, so I think, I think there'll be two sort of dynamics. I mean, you know, central London property is, ridiculously expensive and what you can get for your money is is kind of ludicrous uh, and you know growing families need more space and so that dynamic i think will continue um people are either priced out of london uh, and which you always get every second half of the cycle or priced out of the main cities and they look they look at secondary and tertiary cities and businesses follow them or businesses go because they're looking for cheaper real estate uh, and people follow them uh, so i certainly think you'll have that dynamic reinforced maybe by uh, people who don't who, who've actually decided that maybe being in the city isn't quite as you know quite fits what they want and they rather like um, being you know having access to outdoors and nature and all that sort of thing and they don't need to be in the city for work because you know work they've come to an arrangement where they can work remotely. Um, so you'll I think you'll have that dynamic, but you know as you say there are some people who might 
might think, well, you know, the countryside is a bit boring. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and, and so they may want to, and they may take the opportunity to look at the fact that, you know, very few parts of England have experienced um, a fall in property prices uh, in the last year, uh, if you take, you know, the overall year. Um, but Westminster was one of them. So uh, they might think, well, prices have come down in central locations. And so we can afford to have a nice you know, apartment quite close in. So if um, we gave you a couple of million and said set up, a, well, actually, that probably wouldn't go very far. Let's say five million. <laughs> <laughs> and but set, you can borrow. Yeah, yeah. OK, well, let, let, let's up it because yes, we can. And yeah. we're, we're just yeah. fantasizing yeah. now. Let's say we gave you 10 million and said, right, Akil, uh, set up a portfolio how would you do it because you don't don't necessarily have to choose one area now you could choose a few i mean i would go i would go with the dynamic of um secondary and tertiary cities where there's a lot of public investment going in interesting um so i mean the government makes it very easy for you to figure out which cities are going to do well it's wherever you know roads and rails and um, you know, new businesses are relocating, and you know, Trident's being renewed, and all that kind of so stuff. Ma- so, Manchester might be a candidate then. Well, Manchester, the centre of Manchester, had a really strong first half of the cycle. So, I'd, I'd be a bit more selective in Manchester. Yeah. I'd even be prepared to go further north. And um, uh, I would, you know, there's a there's a lot of, I mean, you know, and it, it fits with government policy. So, this sort of idea of levelling up, I mean, that will mm. be accompanied by, or, may, or maybe Birmingham then. Yeah, Birmingham, the Golden Triangle and logistics. Yes, certainly. What's um, the Golden Triangle? I've not not heard of that expression. Uh, I the... think. I, well, I'm, I now I make sure that I've used it's, it it's something to do with golden showers, Paul. We don't want to go there. Tim, you had to bring it down, <laughs> didn't you? We were doing think, so well. I know it, it seemed appropriate to like, like like massively move the conversation standard down by ten notches immediately. <laughs> now it's quite all right. It's, what else are you going to talk about on Sunday morning? Um, no, so, I, so my understanding is there's an area in the Midlands where you a, a lorry driver can basically access any part of the UK within a sort of an, a, a, a full shift of driving. Oh, right, uh, that's clever. So a lot of, lot of Mer- just- Meriden is the geographic heart centre of all of England. So if you were to, to triangulate from all the corners of England, Meriden, which is in the West Midlands, would be the dead centre of England. Ah, uh-huh. right. right. That's that's really interesting. You've learned something today. Indeed. There you go. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, uh, you know... That, that, from a logistics point of view, with a lot of um, you know online shopping and all this other stuff that's happening, that's a that's a place from a commercial point of view. Then, I, of course, some businesses are relocating to Birmingham because you're you know with you know, the rail investment coming in, you have easy access to London, uh, and uh, there's you know more affordable uh, real estate, and so um, people are moving up to to that part. So that would be a potential. Um, the area where Trident is being renewed, there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, uh, demand for property in those areas. Probably uh, you could do quite a nice uh, residential letting business because, you know, you have workers coming in for, you know, several months at a time, but not necessarily being there permanently. So so uh, how much of your 10 million goes into Birmingham in that area? As opposed to other areas. Yes. Gosh, I didn't. I didn't realise I'd be coming on for this kind of question. Well, um, I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just intrigued as to how you would spend hunch? it. I mean, what? it doesn't have to be, you know, completely accurate. It's just like, oh, I'd probably put twenty percent, thirty percent there, or, or would you be more bullish and put fifty percent there and then sprinkle it elsewhere? I mean, I, I'd say I, I wouldn't put it all there. 
Right. Um, because I think there are a lot of other exciting areas, probably. Um, I mean, I haven't really looked at because I unfortunately don't have 10 million at the moment. So. No, no, but then we're giving you the fantasy money. So that's yes, like, if, no, no, if you saying, have. I would have looked into, if I had 10 million, I would have looked into slightly more detail. But um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I would look, I would look, I think there were some opportunities in places like Barrow um, where, where a lot of the kind of Trident renewal will be taking place. And um, British Aerospace and other companies like that have um, quite a bit of uh, investment and in, in large sites and so on. You think- warmonger. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, I th- the, uh, the other the other side of the commodity cycle is increasing geopolitical tension. So mm. I think war is war is coming yeah. uh, of some description. It won't uh, if, it, if it hasn't already arrived. If, well, indeed. Maybe uh, so. Trade war, other kind of cyber war, but kinetic yeah. war, I think, I mean, is also quite a possibility. Um, well, there's a cheery thought for a Sunday morning. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think, I mean, but at least preparation for war can be quite bullish for markets. So, yeah. So, so investors um, be well to pay attention to that. Well, what, it's just out of interest because I haven't followed them. Um, what, what, have you, have you, have you clocked what's happening with, with like aerospace and defence um, businesses? Um, are, are, mean, they, are they are they moving in a bullish way? They, yeah, I mean, they have been for quite a quite a bit of time. Yeah. Um, yes, yes, they are, and I expect them to continue. I mean, some of them I won't really touch because they're involved in pretty nefarious Nasty things yeah, yeah. so, so uh, i'd rather just not having to do with them but um yeah. but yeah they are doing quite well and but and it's i mean so the problem is some of these are you know it's quite hard to work out what their main sort of business is because so secretive yeah. I mean, some of them are you know quite heavily involved in um kind of the near earth economy so uh some of that kind of satellite building and so on i think it's quite exciting but it's quite hard to find companies that are just involved in that mm. uh, to invest in so if we if we look at the interest rate situation and if you're mm. still if you're going to be bullish into 2026 does I'm I'm just trying to square the circle with the fact that it does seem that the path of well let let's say the the path of in, short term interest rates should be higher but actually may not be so we could be sitting here in 2025 looking at, at negative interest rates for all we know but if interest rates do start to move up would that imply mm. that we've got a higher rate of inflation that is outpacing the the, the, the the short-term interest rate. So in other words, it's still worth buying property because we're in a bullish cycle, even though the inflationary aspect of it is kicking in because that's definitely bubbling up in the background. And I, I can't see how you're going to have property prices moving up and all commodities moving up and no inflation, although that's what the government statistics seem to want us to believe. I know. I mean, the, the the peak is the run up to the peak. The two, three years, four years into the peak is always characterised by inflation starting to pick up and be a permanent sort of feature of the thing, and and then therefore interest rates do respond. But it's only transit. It's only transitory permanence. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, the the he- sort of pretty headline grabbing numbers now. I I can sort of I can sort of see how the story might develop. That actually, once things are open up again, um, inflation, at least according to their measures, and you can argue till the cows come home about what should be and what shouldn't be measured. Um, I can see that coming back down. The markets might then sort of get a degree of confidence, go full in, and so on. But when you have a booming property market. Uh, and when land prices are um, 
uh, inflating massively, you're getting overbuilding on a massive scale. That is a very inherently inflationary scenario. Um, and I think what happens then is central banks figure out that they don't really understand what's going on because they don't really understand the land market. Um, and then they start raising interest rates. And for a time, the market can shrug that off, not least because there's so much competition in the in the banking sector for lending that any sort of underlying interest rate uh, increases at the short end of the curve is offset by, say, competition. depressed top competition. Uh, and so that continues for some time. And then at some point, uh, the, the economy can't take it any longer. And the gov- you know, the Fed comes to the point of view that actually if it raises interest rates, it might try and sort of you know gently pop the balloon. And of course, everyone races for the hills. Or it might let things go on a bit longer and inflation uh, really kick in and then that has uh, sort of massive sort of consequences as well but essentially they're they're trying to contain a problem that is already kind of out there and and is uh, largely um, can't be contained so uh, that's that's kind of how it plays out at the end of the cycle so there will definitely be inflation and there will definitely be um firstly i mean i think the yield curve at the moment is relatively steep that flattens um uh, f- uh, for a bit of time and then at some point prior to the peak will will invert now it, it, probably with so much central government uh, central bank intervention in the um uh, in the bond market it might be hard to see the inversion but we did you know we did see an inversion of the yield curve uh, in 2019 um and uh, you know i was expecting 2020 regardless of the pandemic to be a uh, recessionary year or maybe a year of pretty significant slowdown uh, consistent with the cycle and indeed in the run-up to the end of 2019 I mean, you saw some pretty ropey economic data uh, in terms of pmi numbers and so on suggesting that actually uh, things were starting to slow um uh, and it was in some ways i think the pandemic was the excuse to really reduce interest rates again because uh, the, the fed was on a tightening cycle at the time do you have any um, geopolitical or, or geographical national sovereign preferences in terms of which countries you see being better placed to survive whatever's ahead and those that are less good? I mean, my, my own natural bias is I hate Europe and I particularly hate France. So anything that's, you know, that, that does <laughs> them in. I mean, I'm, I'm going to cut I'm gonna cut right to the end because, you know, we, we tend to finish with a sort of media picks around. So my media pick ahead of time is is a book that my brother recommended called A Thousand Years of Annoying the French. <laughs> it describes the relationship between England and Britain and, and France. And I bloody hate the French. So, so that, 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 that. Is it not a love-hate speaks... relationship? Yeah. No, it's a hate-hate relationship. <laughs> it's, 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 is um, it really? And, and it's basically, yeah, it's, and this, this book, which I've only just started by Stephen Clark, it, it, it points out that it's, it's, it's full of fascinating stuff like basically we invented champagne. Uh, and then they they claim to have done it, but actually it was it was it was invented here first. And the that it wasn't really a French. It was the Norman the Norman conquest was was kind of that because Normandy isn't really France. It's actually those guys were Norsemen, so it, it wasn't even a French colonization. It was a it was a it was a Norse one. And everything that the French have told us basically is a lie. <laughs> anyway, so 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 to go back, do you have any preferential sort of country uh, picks? Um. So say, for example, U.S. versus China or U.S. versus Europe versus China. Um, or could, well, India as well. Any, we talked about that, that last time. Anything that endorses Brexit would also, would also be right. To <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes I, I, I sort of see your, your, your Twitter feed <laughs> up on my own. So I, I know your views about that very well, Tim. Um, 
Yeah, look, I mean, like any any countries that will do well out of expanding global global trade um, uh, that you tend, you know, and global GDP. So the exporters, I think, I suppose that means um, China, Germany, and you know, South Korea, and all those sort of countries. Um, I, I actually Vietnam, perhaps. Yeah, Vietnam uh, certainly. I'd be, I'm, I'm quite bullish about Japan. I know yeah. that. Um, uh, maybe on a selective basis, but you know, a country that's had to come to terms with funny demographics and uh, has, they've also been dealing with grinding deflation for like twenty odd years, so they're they're battle hardened now. The Japanese they're battle hardened, but and but in terms of their companies, I mean, you know, talk about a country that's you know got a head start on things like robotics and other things yeah. that are going to be part of the future. I mean, Japan, I think, because and you know, look, I mean, you can never ignore U.S. technology. Uh, and also U.S. banks uh, who are now making a major play into the um, kind of wealth management industry in China, which is worth many trillions of dollars. So um, I think they will be, you know, very significant. But typically, um, if if uh, the pattern of previous cycles is going to be repeated, you tend to find um, more industrial uh, construction finance uh, sectors outperform um kind of the more tech ones and so i think the tech play is here more into if you know uh apple decides it's going to become a type of bank or amazon is going to go into construction of prefabricated homes for example uh, which you know and they are making investments in these areas uh, i think you might see some uh, some of that sort of dynamic so they participate in the land boom that i'm expecting to take place in the 2020s and so therefore whatever um uh, stock market uh uh, indices that are exposed to those sorts of sectors, I think, will do very well. The other one, the other uh, area is, of course, those that are commodity producers. Mm. Um, and so that will bring into play parts of uh, Africa and, of course, Australia. Also Australia, yeah. So it's just, just, just a quick, just a breaking news. Were the Brits really responsible for the death of Joan of Arc? No, the French sent us to the death of wearing trousers. Just thought I'd share that with you. <laughs> if Apple... Apple say that they're going to be making cars. And if you look at the valuation of the car companies that are out there, yeah. you've got Neo yeah. and obviously you've got Tesla. That yeah. would suggest that Apple's got $1,000 written all over it, surely. Does, does Apple make cars or does it just make the tech inside the yeah. cars? Well, no, they, they say they're going to start making cars. And you know what Apple's like. If Apple makes something, they make it through and through. They don't like yeah. to outsource anything. I mean, they've just, just even started making their own chips for their computers. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, they may start using other other technology, but they, they're a ground-up company in, in, at heart. So one would say that that they would want to control every aspect of it. And if that's true... I suppose in the short term, the price might go down as they develop it and put money into it, but they've got a lot of cash. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the, the relative valuations, um, would that not suggest a massive increase in price? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think well, Elon Musk has found that making cars is not quite as easy as, as, uh, as he thought it would be. And so, I mean, and the tech component is obviously very significant, particularly the way that you automobile industry is going with driverless cars and so on but actually churning out millions and millions of cars is not the easiest thing in the world um and so uh, uh i wouldn't say it's a risk-free proposition but as you say um apple when it puts it mind to it can really design some fantastic operations yeah well they have the the advantage of having a brand that people respect and therefore would it would be seen as a premium product but um 
I think, yeah. I think one of the main problems with, with all these electric vehicles is how do they build in the obsolescence? Because with petrol motors, they inevitably wear out. I, mean, I know batteries obviously will do. So you've got mm -hmm. that element, but that's, an, that's something that could be quite easily replaced. But when you build an electric car, you effectively, other than changing the tires and the brakes, you have no servicing required. So that's taken that whole dealership and taking your car back to wherever you bought it to have its its sort of yearly service, that's all gone. And yeah. that's apparently why cars are so expensive, because they're saying that they're building that cost into you buying the car in the first place, which to me does not make any sense at all. It should be what it costs and what is economically viable for building it. But in terms of technology, Again, I can't get. I don't know how technically minded you are in this area, but it does oh, not. It does not seem to be. It's not rocket science. You've got an. You've got an electric motor. You've got some batteries. You've already got the ability to to create the the structure of the car, and there's nothing that's that's complete uh, that we couldn't have done probably fifty years ago. Other than we've got new battery technology. So I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that there are less parts. And it's effectively simpler. Uh, of course, you've got the problem of range with electric cars. But other mm. than that, I can't, I can't work out why they're so damn expensive. Other than that. Given that a car is now effectively more like a robot, if you remember Marvin the Paranoid Android, the problem might be that they'll all get depressed and we'll need to pay for like psychotherapy for them. <laughs> That's a new business. Got to set that up. Indeed. I think... Um, probably a car would be a bit like uh, any app that you have on your phone in sense of sub subscription model. So mm. you pay for your monthly update of whatever it is, you know, whatever automated features that uh, will come with it. But I actually think car ownership might eventually disappear pretty much other than for kind of enthusiasts and collectors. We might, we might need a completely different form of AA for the car. Poor thing. <laughs> yeah. I, th Indeed. I, I think you're right there, Akil, about, um, I mean, if you think about how how your car is utilised and yeah. how many cars just sit on the road exactly. doing nothing. It would make sense to have some kind of like almost rental participation. So in the World Economic Forum, I'm sure, would be delighted. Uh, yeah, people, I know. People, that, people own nothing but love it. That it, That is actually quite irritating, isn't it? That, that that's part of what they were saying. But actually, in some ways, that kind of makes sense. That, that at least is valid because they are economically... Um, you know, superfluous or, or waste wasting assets when they're not being used. Yeah, it would make sense to pull them. So you yeah. just, you just, you just, and you, you know, you there'd be self driving at some point relatively soon. I'd have thought. Uh, so you just get onto your app and order the nearest roving car uh, to pick you up. Yes, indeed. Uh, and and so and then if if that's the case, then personalization of cars is, goes, and so maybe one car pretty much looks like another and actually it's more designed to be a, a mobile office or a mobile entertainment center or something um that it is you everyone facing forward uh, towards the road um uh and uh, so uh, i think you know that might end up being part of the whole kind of new new ways of working type of scenario you kind of you're working as you're driving into a to a meeting i guess and so maybe and that uh, again i mean we're not talking about the present cycle we're probably talking about a future one that then suggests well uh, maybe all you're really doing is having a couple of meetings a day everything else is remote and you you be located where you can access your local meeting point or something i don't know mm. 
it's um it's it's interesting to speculate and um and, and talking of which you I, I seem to recall that you made a and correct me if i'm wrong i may have misread this from somewhere but i've got in my head that you, that you've got a target for the footsie that's that's around 15,000 at the peak cycle am i correct in saying that um I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> I say a lot of things. Well, I, no, I did say, so I wrote a Money Week cover story about um, seven years ago, and I said I expected fo- the FTSE to reach 12,000. I remember that because I just reread the article. Aha, uh-huh, okay. Um, uh, so yesterday, maybe... because I'm re- I'm doing another cover story in the next couple of weeks. Oh, give us a scoop before it goes out. What what are, what are you going to say? I mean, you know, pretty much the stuff that I've said today, you know, where, where we are in the cycle, what I expect to see coming, how do I know when we get there? Mm. Um uh, I mean, what actually one really good one really good indication of when the cycle is is almost over is some really outrageously tall or long or deep building um, that really only makes sense because there's a lot of banks, you know, throwing money at it. Got very high land prices, so you got to build higher to to make the the economic stack up, uh, and a very bullish, uh, optimistic kind of almost manic uh, period of investment. Well, there, I thought we'd hit that with the the um, Middle Eastern superstructures going on, and I, so I thought we'd we'd seen that. But you're saying that there's obviously more to come. I think there's more to come. So, I mean, what it was, so the Burj Khalifa was the classic example from the peak of the last cycle. You know that. I mean, these buildings always open in the middle of the crisis. Yes. Um, and that, so that didn't, and a bit like the Shard in London, which you know at the time was Europe's uh, tallest building, but you can actually go back. A cycle further so um uh, the building in canary wharf it was opened in 91 in the middle of a recession yes absolutely but that, uh, that's why i thought south. it was a big peak sorry to cut in but that's why i thought that was the that was the major peak and we were turning down but it's interesting you're saying even though that was the biggest building it was a top of market cycle indicator it's still not the the top no so uh, yeah so it took many years for the previous record to be broken you see what you say? It took many years of recovery. But what you tend to find as you get the second half is you get a series of, you know, marginally more taller buildings. I mean, technology is improving. So I think one of those constraints on how high you can go is how big the lift shaft has to be um, the further up you go. Um, because, you know, effectively, if you go up too high, then the top several floors is just basically lift shaft and nothing else. There's no usable space. So it's no point uh, building up higher. Uh, but that has now improved, and so you can go much higher. And so what you'll have is, you know, a series of really, really tall, I think, really, really tall buildings uh, into the peak. And it's not just the height. It's also, you know, it's um, in Dubai, in the in the, um, in the the sea off Dubai, they had, I think they were building 24 different islands. You know, they're dredging up part of the seabed and creating these man-made islands. Uh, and each one was going to have its own microclimate. So one would be like Sweden, it would be snowing half the time. You know, this is in the middle of the desert, uh, effectively. And so, so really outrageously stupid things, wasting <laughs> money and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. you, you'll have all, and funny enough, that that a construction project never got, got off the ground. Uh, and so nothing was ever built. And then a, a few years later, when I looked into it, um, you know, the, the sea was reclaiming <laughs> half these islands that they'd built. Um, yeah. So, so you get 
you get that kind of behavior. It's just really ridiculous. Um, and you'll, I think you'll know it when you see it. Uh, and I'm not sure we've really seen it yet. So that's, that's so interesting. I don't know whether Tim, you've heard of this, but I'm sure Akil has the, the hemline index, which yeah, is, is the also indicator. Yeah. So that would suggest at the top of the cycle, goodness, I mean, you're going to have mini skirts. <laughs> so just to explain what that is, it's not even mini skirts. I'm just thinking, who is that? Who is that singer who basically she's the one that did wrecking ball? Uh, yeah, she doesn't wear anything. Oh, really? What at the moment? Forget, forget about a microscope. There's just virtually nothing, and she just half herself in the nude. So, so just explain what we're talking about because it does sound a bit crazy. There's there is a there's a kind of link between fashion and people's bullish stroke bearishness. So, during a, an economic boom, people feel more outlandish and are willing that the female show fashion a bit more flesh. will show a bit more flesh. And and it, the opposite, when people are feeling more conservative, that you will get longer skirts and and um, things get. You know, you can see it with the Oscars, actually. It's quite interesting where, where the, the hemline index is. So literally looking at the hemline can tell you relatively where the stock market could be headed. So if yeah. we're looking at a super cycle bull market where it's greater than anything that we've seen before, obviously we had in the 60s that the, the, the mini skirt came in. So we're probably looking at something you know, no, it really, it, maybe it's maybe it's male fashion. Maybe it's the the how how long male trousers will be. That's interesting. Uh, that's a, that's a really interesting call. Yeah, it just sort of spills well, over into into men. They are Paul. You'll <laughs> remember when we were doing one of our um, uh, music uh, uh, enterprises recently. The so we've 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 successfully managed to dethrone Matt Hancock yeah. with our satirical the power of our satirical video. That was, um, <laughs> that was all that was all Tim's idea, and he's done yeah. it <laughs> all down to us. Um, <laughs> and the, the 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 sexy nurses that we had for the shoot, one of them wanted uh, a particularly let's say uh, outre song. Who was it? Was a singer? Was it Cardi B? Yes, but the but the lyrics were completely disgusting. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder whether I'm not that's, sure if that's a valid. I'm not sure if that's as valid as the hemline indicator, but well, I'd say it's on a par with it. I, I always think that with music, there is a there's a tendency for each generation to out to test to, the limits. Yeah, yeah. To to kind of shock the previous limits. I mean, for example, if we go back to to when Sex Pistols having like, yeah, like, like the Sex Pistols brick. at the time would, would the, the parents of the day would be having kittens at how bad yeah. it is, and then. You know, Black Sabbath. You had people saying that apparently they work of the devil, work of the, the devil, and you know, court cases for for all sorts of things going on, and you know, all that sort of nonsense. So, uh, yeah, I I take your point. I mean, you listen to listen to Cardi B and some of the lyrics of of what women are saying in in rapping. I'm not saying that necessarily there's any anything that um, th that gives men the right to say the same thing, but it, it's just it, it, if you can understand what I'm trying to say here, it's just a bit more shocking when you hear women using very aggressive, sexually aggressive um, language in their lyrics. It's just a bit more shocking than men who've kind of done it f for a long time. I mean, we were, we were on the march yesterday and we were, I was playing a bit of Big Bottom by Spinal Tap, which looked awfully staid <laughs> by comparison. <laughs> but since we're on this topic, I must just, just give a shout out to the lyrics because they are superb, like Big Bottom, Big Bottom, talk about bum cakes, my girl's got them. Big Bottom, drive me out of my mind. And then the all-time best lyric of all time, how can I leave this behind? Yeah, it's just genius, isn't it? Spinal <laughs> Tap, you cannot, you cannot get you any better. You can't top that, you can't top that. Indeed, and 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 Akil, you, you um, have you got a degree in English as well? If I'm, if I'm, my memory no, serves me. Classics, classics. That's right. Okay, yeah. so proper education. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. un unlike me, uh, thicko me. Um, so, 
what what have you been doing with your and obviously you've been very busy with property share market so tell us a bit tell us a bit about that and tell us what you've been up to um in the lockdown if that's given you more time to do other things um <clears throat> No, so I mean, lockdown has been quite busy for a number of reasons. Uh, partly because I work for an international organisation, which tends to do more when uh, economies are going through crises. So uh, it's been busy, but I've been writing a book. Um, I've been, actually, last time I came on, I was still I was writing it. Not quite finished it yet, um, but I'm not far off it. Uh, off the first draft. There's that, there's, that, there's that great one-liner. What are you doing? I'm writing a book. Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was actually true for most of the last year, it has to be said. I mean, it would be perfect uh, to writing time being stuck indoors, but it was uh, it's a bit too much to spend all day on the computer and then spend all evening as well. So, um, But I'm not far off the first draft. On property share market economics, yes, I mean, we're trying to grow... Um, trying to grow the business. It, what's quite interesting, though, is um, you have people like... I don't know if you've heard of Harry Dent. Um, yeah, yeah. So you have you have people out in the news saying that you know right next year going to be massive crash and you know you really just got to buy gold and go and sit in the foothills of Himalayas or something uh, or New Zealand or wherever and um, and you have my friend Phil and I uh, so Phil Anderson who wrote this book called The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking which as I said before um, traced the cycle in the U.S. Uh, back to 1800 and um, we're saying look I mean we've seen this kind of thing play out before we. You know, going to experience a massive boom, uh, and uh, you know, really, you need to be positioning yourself to take advantage. And we can't get nearly as much traction on social media as people who about you're saying that it's, everything's about to collapse. Um, I mean, I don't know what that means, uh, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure, if I were to make a prediction, when I when we get to the peak of the cycle and things are looking really optimistic and everyone is in the markets, and you know. At, by the peak of the cycle, by definition, everyone is in profit because, you know, markets are at all time highs. Um, well, when we say, well, you know, really should be careful uh, and, uh, you know, really don't uh, don't sort of do any more, reduce the leverage, start selling assets and stuff. I think we'll also find it difficult to get that message across. Um, uh, so it's been quite an interesting challenge uh, for us. But we have um, we've developed a portfolio i mean this is so most of our customers are in australia and it's uh, based in australia developed a managed portfolio so people can invest uh in accordance with what we're saying about the cycle and what sectors do well at what points and so on so quite excited about that um and so, hopefully uh, <laughs> we outperform our benchmark to prove that we know what we're talking about and and so will you be investing in 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 property in the way that we we sort of fantasized about earlier is that is that part of the portfolio of this company so this is based in stock. So we will be yeah. we'll have a REIT exposure mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Um, uh, not direct uh, property investing. Um, right. uh, but actually, you that's know, better though, isn't it really? Because you can is, get in and out. You can get in and out, yes. Um, so that's, ja that's Jamaica and Ethiopia, yeah? A REIT? Uh, sorry, that's... <laughs> even, even by my standards, that was poor. You're, you're on form today, Tim. <laughs> um, so... Uh, yes, I mean, direct property obviously has the advantage of you can uh, get a leveraged return and uh, the capital growth can be you know, tremendous. But um, obviously, yes, property is in general a very illiquid investment. So being able to exit via secondary markets on an exchange is much better. So you, you, you mentioned the comp you mentioned the international company. That's obviously the international company. But what, what, what's the what's the name of it? 
Uh, it's called the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Oh right, so that what that's that's who you're you're giving um, research to or managing the no, portfolio? That's, no, that's I work there. I work for them part time. I'm a oh, uh, oh, I see. Right. Yeah. right, right, okay, okay. And and you mentioned the um, the commodity cycle, and, and you've given us some really interesting insights as to where you think things are going. But we we can't sort of let you go without asking the the, Crypto. the yeah we have to ask you that I, know, I hope you understand but it's, it's it is it's an important question that um like for example you've seen talib's changed you may have seen that talib's kind of changed his view on it a bit he he was from what i understood very much of an advocate of decentralized markets and less government intervention which was kind of a bit towards well that's towards <clears throat> excuse me the way that we like to think of capitalism and, and the way the market should work but he seems to have changed his tune what what do you think about bitcoin and perhaps his comments uh i haven't actually seen his latest comments so um i won't be able to comment on that but well, he's very bearish basically he's just he's just said he's calling people bit idiots now and saying that <laughs> saying that it should go to zero that the argument is bitcoin that, should go to zero or, or some of these really ridiculous coins well the, possibly those but i mean i Dog think that money. bitcoin gets the uh gets the brunt of everything doesn't it because it's the most it well known so Paul, yeah. were, you, were you telling me that someone someone had set up scam coin no I that said, wasn't this me. is this is deliberately this is deliberately a scam and it got like a 70 billion dollar valuation yeah i mean that is crazy i mean and that's why you know just to uh, we'll get your opinion on bitcoin in a, in a second akil but just this is why there are so many people out there who are thinking that we are at the top of some sort of cycle because yeah. you don't normally get crazy things like this unless there's too much money out there unless there's top of the cycle interest rates can't go any lower and yeah. there's too much easy money to be made. So you can yeah. you can sympathize and and to that yeah. point as well. Remember that the best research is usually the the least popular because people don't like to hear what is correct. They want they want to hear what they want to hear. So if you're singing on the other side, that's by its very nature going to be less popular. Um so I mean I, and I should, I, I want to say that, you know, I'm talking about the overall economic. So it doesn't mean you might not have kind of major bubbles and things uh, that have a slightly more localized effect in relation to the cycle. So it could. And I think Bitcoin is now what, at 30, so it's halved in value yeah. over the last uh, two to three months um, and, you know, may even get back down to 20,000. So, we, you know, lost 67 percent of its value, yeah. uh, which is pretty significant, you know, crash, I suppose you'd call it. Uh, even though with Bitcoin, a 67% move doesn't feel like much of anything, to be honest. Um, so uh, you can you can certainly get bubbles in, in various things. And, and the 2010s was a good example. I mean, we had the Bitcoin kind of surge into a peak in, I think it was early 2018 or was it 2019? I can't remember. You also had very frothy um, kind of alternative oil kind of stocks and investments and you know massive investment in that which, you know, fell pretty significantly. Um, and uh, there was, you know, the Chinese market had a pretty significant peak in 2015 um, and maybe some of the other emerging markets as well. So you do get these things, but what none of them have been underpinned by is a collapsing real estate market, which is what you get at the end of the cycle. And that brings, you know, the economy down, um, uh, not least because the banking system ceases to function in the way it should uh, providing credit 
to right. businesses. So that's kind of real that's sort of where I come in. So you might, you know, we might well be at a critical juncture for cryptocurrency um, when actually people think we were we'd rather not be investing in this, and but it'll find its way into something else. And you know, are there candidates for um, for too much money going in? I suppose green energy stocks, um, and you know, a lot of you know, there might well be a lot of um, energy companies that aren't able to deliver on what they say they will, and, and but nonetheless, they have ridiculous valuations, etc. Uh, and some of it might be predicated on, I don't know, the price of carbon in trading um, schemes being sort of 50 or $70, and actually it doesn't achieve that, or it achieves that for a time, and then that crashes and brings the whole uh, thing down. So I'm, I'm sure we will get very frothy um uh, elements of of the uh, uh, of the, uh, the various different assets and different markets over time, and commodities might be part of that as well. Um, in general, I mean, I think the idea of decentralized finance uh, shaking things up is, you know, there was clearly a gap in the market, um, and so um, I think in some form or another, whether it's controlled by the monetary authorities or not, and I suspect probably will be controlled. I think the technology uh, contribution to um, kind of money is here to stay, whether it's Bitcoin or something else, I, I couldn't tell you. Um, I mean, all these other sort of pretty ridiculous coins, um, I mean, they're, they're clearly very ripe for being part of some kind of massive scam and will will uh, part people from their money. And and that, I think, is probably the general point I'd like to make. There's there's something new every cycle which brings in new investors into new vehicles uh, and uh, it succeeds in, in uh, taking their money away from them. Uh, and if that's going to be um, cryptocurrency this cycle, um, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, so, so I think there'll be there's more to that story than than uh, than we've seen so far. So when did so you're basing these very kind of strong and confident um, assertions on Henry George's cycles? When when did he, when did he write? When did he create these? Uh, when did he write his works? Does he have a, a single book or was yeah, this, he does. Yeah, yeah. So so Henry George was a, an American. Well, he wasn't really an economist. He was never. He never went to university. He was just a. He was, I think, part-time journalist and did various things, very keen observer. So he basically asked in 18, the 1870s during what was then called the Long Depression, um, why do we have these recurring booms and busts? Uh, and why does it seem that for all the amazing technological advances that we're seeing in our economies, why is it that uh, there's rising inequality? Why is it the rising gap between those who have and those who don't have? Uh, and he you know, investigated all the sort of ideas and things that were current at the time and put it down to the fact that you know we have we have um what he called the private capture of economic rent and basically economic rent is essentially the value of location uh, if you're talking about the land market uh so um you know it costs the same to build a house if you're building in the center of london or you're building in inverness but yes. the price will be different and the difference in the price is uh the location and the value of that location is a function of how much public investment has gone into the surrounding area. So London's the centre of population because of all the infrastructure and the location, and uh, uh, and so on. Uh, and so, and, but what happens is when you get housing prices rising, it's really the price of the location that's going up. In fact, the building itself is deteriorating in value as any 
home and it knows so your bits fall off and needs a repainting all that kind of stuff um and his his so his essential argument was that rather than taxing people's wages and taxing company profits what you should be taxing is this locational value which is basically the function of public investment um and that would solve the boot bus cycle and it would also solve inequality have you read dominic frisbee's book uh, yeah, so Dominic, Dominic is a Georgist in that sense. So yes. it's basically where this idea comes from. I mean, it was very influential in the late uh, 19th century, so much so that um, probably no other work of economics has been more widely read than Henry George, even though no one's really read it for about 100 years. Wow. Um, so in the, in the 1890s, they were selling more copies of it than any other book other than the Bible. Uh, and it was very influential in the UK with the Liberal Party um, and was championed as a as a policy platform uh, in the 1909 People's Budget, which led to a constitutional crisis. All the landowners in the House of Lords opposed it, of course, because um, uh, they 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 live, you know, they 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 benefit from the system as it is. Uh, and two, the the biggest two champions were Lloyd George and Churchill, who at the time was a Liberal MP. For this one, and this was one of the reasons why he was a Liberal MP. Uh, anyway, they succeeded in stopping it. Um, and in US universities, they kind of, they, um, in the 1920s, they sort of succeeded in saying that land is not a specific factor of production, it's just a form of capital and so should be treated alongside other forms of capital. Um, and so, you know, no one really focuses on the land market and no one um, sort of really understands the cycle for that reason. In the 19, sorry, this is rather long-winded. No, it's answer. great. Keep going. Keep in, going. In the in the 19 early 1930s, there's a uh, an economist doing a PhD at the University of Chicago called Homer Hoyt, who traced the development of Chicago from uh, the late 19th century th- through the prism of um, how you know the value of its land and how uh, the city spread out uh, along the shores of uh, Lake Michigan. Uh, And he discovered that the cycle, and he'd read his Henry George and and so on, understood the land question very well. Um, And uh, he discovered that actually these cycles of, you know, things ticking along sort of fairly steadily and then kind of going into some major boom uh, and then a major crisis took place on average every 18 years. Um, And the same thing was going on in other U.S. cities, even though he was specifically talking about Chicago. Um, so that, that was the first sort of discovery of the existence of the 18-year cycle. And then um, uh, the Second World War happened, and it seemed that the cycle had disappeared. But actually, it was an English economist called Fred Harrison who read his Homer Hoyt and had read his Henry George, who was a, very much an advocate for Henry George's ta- ideas on taxation and on free trade. Um, and he actually traced the bottom of the land market post-Second World War to 1955, uh, and saw that uh, the that land land prices and the real estate cycle peaked in 1973, and then we had a major financial crisis, which actually coincided with the oil crisis, and that has been blamed for the recession of of the mid 70s. But actually, to you know, to to those of us who look at things in in the way that we do, it was actually fundamentally a land crisis. Um, Anyway, he used that insight of the 18-year cycle to publish a book in 1983 called Power in the Land, which he detailed, you know, how he understood these cycles to work and the importance of land and so on. And he made a forecast in 1983 and said, by 1990, we'll be in the, ma- in the midst of a sort of uh, major crisis um, to do with a, this real estate cycle. 
And of course, he was right. Um, and we saw it, you know, we saw it in the US, we saw it in the UK in the early 90s, and we saw it most famously in Japan. Um, uh, and so at the peak of the cycle in 1990, the, val- the, the value of the land notionally under the, um, the Imperial Palace in Tokyo was worth more than all the land in California because the boom had been so big. Uh, and so that that was confirmation that the cycle was well and truly up and running. He could use it to make forecasts. Uh, and he did the same thing again in '97. He said, in, "By 2008, we'll be in the midst of a major banking and financial crisis." Goodness. Uh, so that that's kind of how I came across him. And then, uh, as, as I said, my friend Phil uh, took that history back to 1800 in the US. So, your book will it focus on what's what's happened, his work, or tell us about what will be in the content? Yeah, so I mean, I don't, I'm not going to establish the existence of the cycle. I'll take that as given. What I yeah. do is I I structure the book around one cycle, uh, not not one historical episode. What I do is I break it down into four or five different phases, and I illustrate each phase with a different episode from history. I say this is the sorts of things that happen at, at this phase in the cycle, and here's what you as an investor should be thinking about. So, you know, at the start of the cycle, stock market's always low first. It's always led by technology stocks. So that's the sectors that you should be exposed to um, at the start of the cycle. You know, towards the peak, it's very much a real estate boom. So real estate banking stocks tend to be the things that are appreciating the fastest. So I, I do that. So it's both a illustration of the cycle, but more importantly, hopefully uh, practical steps to take at each stage. Can't wait for it. So, so you actually think that the banking stocks are going to go into a, a bullish phase because they have really been sitting out this party, haven't they? So uh, far, le- less so in the US than the UK. But yes, yes, I mean, I mean, of course, there could be. I mean, there's there's usually banking stocks or providers of finance for the housing market because it's extremely lucrative to, you know, have to do your due diligence once and then extend a loan for 25 years and for it to be paying interest. And then, of course, if you can, and what we saw in the last cycle, if people can shift that business, so the kind of the, the kind of boring part of that business to someone else and then, you know, do another, uh, do another um, loan uh, for a few years uh, and keep it going. I mean, it's, it's quite a lucrative business. Uh, and, you know, when uh, it's, it's, it's lucrative also, because not only does the volume of people wanting to buy property increase but also you're doing it at ever increasing prices and so you're earning more and more interest for effectively the same amount of work uh, and most of what the banking system does is extend mortgages to people so it's about 60 percent of lending volume or something maybe more in the uk um and so it is uh during a land boom um providers of finance uh, their share prices appreciate very substantially um and I mean, typically it's led by banking stocks, uh, but the party is joined by newer providers of finance who are not maybe necessarily subject to the same regulations and therefore the same costs, uh, and also probably have less experience, have um, systems that aren't uh, there to um, manage risk properly and and often uh, are managed by very young people who've never seen a crisis. Uh, And so uh, that's where things can go over the top. And of course, Banks don't like losing market share, so then they loosen their credit standards and so on. And so therefore you get a the credit cycle moving into overdrive, but it always follows the land cycle. Tim, what would 
the banking stocks have to do to, b- before you would consider investing them as a value investor? Do they just simply have too much debt for your liking? Yeah, there's just too much debt, and the 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 finances are far too opaque for us ever to trust them. Oh, I and see. I think on 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 the moral grounds, we'd probably never touch them either. But yeah, you, which is entirely fair point. But you you, you could look at um, say ancillary businesses like. Uh, say I mean, state, so for example, we, state, we do uh, we so we do own um, we do own shares in businesses that operate in like online. Um, uh, brokerage. Oh. So we've got some broker dealer stocks, and we've got some, but, uh, the, the the classic high street bank names that they're, they're unlikely ever to be value enough for us. But you see value in. So in other words, you are see, still seeing value in the property market, but you just coming at it at a different angle. We'd, yeah, I mean, we'd be looking at it from a perspective of well, it's partly a cash generation thing, so we need to see lots of free cash flow, free cash generation. The reason why property doesn't typically hasn't featured in our processes because it's it's too dependent on slightly subjective assessments of what property is actually worth in value terms so in other words it's not that the, the yeah. revenues don't derive from selling product they derive from an arbitrary assessment of the land value or the capital value of the property in question which is is arbitrary and that's that's too kind of like um yeah, that's too tailorable for our taste we prefer something with a bit more discipline to it mm. right Fair i point. see but so, we have a very specific approach so it's, it's certainly not for everybody it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's so something that we're we we're just trying to to screen out as many risks as possible, and the the the, the investable universe for us is is vanishingly small. So if there are if there are let's say a hundred thousand listed stocks out there in the world, which they could well be, I don't know the precise figures, but if there are say a hundred thousand, then at any one time the number that of those of that universe that we would actively consider investing in is probably less than fifty. But you're you're ultra cautious for for a very good reason. Well, it's, it's ultra defensive because yeah. the kind of stuff that we're looking at is firstly cash flow generation. Secondly, it's it's a more subjective assessment of quality of management and and sort of track record and pedigree in terms of sort of our performance. And the third is things like yeah, how, how much debt? Ideally, none. So most most companies won't make it simply because they're they're too they're too levered for our, for our taste. Yeah. Because we're basically what we want a bulletproof portfolio. We want something that could survive a nuclear war almost literally. Because. After what Akil's just said, I'm I'm thinking like I mean a, a company like a bank like Lloyd's looks very attractive at these perhaps lower levels. So if you were willing to hold on to them, but th- there's been many investors I think stuck in but Lloyd's has been. A, I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, I think it's something Russell Napier said, which is you don't you don't invest in say the US stock market until Citigroup's gone bankrupt again because Citigroup's gone bankrupt I think, about five times now. It's like this is yeah every different. every every downturn every major banking crisis it it goes bankrupt. Yeah. So, yeah. so some of these stocks are just like you know they're a bit of a joke for us. So we'd we'd never invest in them. We'd probably never invest in a, in a sort of traditional bank stock. But but that doesn't mean you can't make good money in them. It's just that we'd prefer to make our money in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So can you give us a um a I suppose you've got your publisher asking when when the book's going to be. But I'm I. <laughs> Can't wait for it to come out, Akil. Thank you very much. Uh, so when is it coming out? Is that the question? Yes, it is. When, when do we well, expect he, to see it in the shops? Me, Can we have an early copy is what I'm kind of hinting at. You certainly can. You certainly can. <laughs> that would be brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it would be something for me to aim at. I, I mean, I'm told by my publishers, Harriman House, that once I hand in the first draft, it'll be a six-month process. Um, and I really want to have a summer holiday. So I'm yeah. hoping that the uh, first draft is done within the next month. Uh, and so I'd say that's been early 2022 publication. 
Fantastic. Other, other publishers of financial literature are available, but Harriman House is the best. By the way, Harriman House is also the publisher of Investing Through the Looking Glass by, uh, by, by yours truly. Indeed. Yes, Tim. That, that's how I found Harriman House, because Tim kindly introduced me to Craig. Oh, is Craig editing your yours? Uh, oh, he's editing part of it. I don't know if he'll do the whole thing. But yeah, he's, Craig, uh, Craig, Craig is an outstanding uh, editor. We'll put links to your book as well, Tim, which is absolutely if fantastic. You, if you insist, Paul. Five-star <laughs> reviews, absolutely amazing. No, it's an amazing book. You know, it really is. It's fantastic. So much fun to read and really educational. So, and I'm expecting... That's very kind. Thank you. Yeah, it's... Um, I'm not just saying that, of course. It really is. Look, yeah, at, look at the, the reviews. Don't, don't worry. Don't believe me. Have a look at the reviews. You'll <laughs> That's see. That's the advantage of having studied English at Oxford, I think. Right. Very well, in addition to, as Tim does, know a lot about financial markets. Yeah, it's it's an interesting marriage of, of skills, isn't it? That you, you both you and Tim are doing that. It's it's you and you wouldn't expect it. Oh, I my so my writing doesn't have the erudition that Tim's does, but um, but uh, you know it's it's kind of it's fun. It's it's hard work though. I didn't you know having written a newsletter for for many years for South Bank Investment Research. Uh, I thought writing a book would be easier than it has proven to be. <laughs> so for the, pe- the trick, the trick is just to cobble together all your old pieces and then and then have some <laughs> someone someone good edit them together for you. <laughs> uh, that's what I should have started. I could have had it in last year. The school, schoolboy <laughs> error. <Akira>. Yes. Sir. <laughs> so in between between now and twenty twenty two, when we're expecting your book, how can people follow your? your thoughts obviously you've got twitter which tell us your twitter handle tell us how people can can stay in tune with what you're thinking yeah uh, so my twitter handle uh, is akil g patel um i'm not as nearly as prolific as tim i mean there'll be i don't think many maybe, people are no i know and i mean you know i think i don't think there are many hours when tim doesn't tweet something whereas there are many weeks when i don't so uh, it's not always the best way of, of getting my thoughts. Um, I, I suppose the best way is you, if they go on to propertyshareemarketseconomics.com um, and that, you know, there's several free books you can download uh, and also a free blog. And then, of course, you could become a subscriber to one of our publications. So tell us about the people behind propertyshareemarketseconomics.com. So it started by... Uh, Along, along with me, um, my friend Phil Anderson, I've mentioned a couple of times already. Um, and so it, it's us sort of putting our heads together because we've been studying the real estate cycle. And also we're very into trying to forecast um, the stock market and commodity markets and gold and so on. And so we tend to put annual forecasts out for all of these things uh, in terms of a kind of a curve for the how we expect the market to progress. Um so this was our first attempt to do it together, having spoken for many years about doing something like this. And we're joined by um, uh, Catherine Stacey, who is one of Phil's longtime subscribers from back in Australia, and a couple of uh, people to help us with the marketing and, and so on and gathering data for indicators. Fantastic. So I'm just having a quick look at the site, and you've got a um, you've got some charts and stuff up there, but you mentioned at the top of the show that you were going to send me a chart. Is Is that chart... On, on your website, or is it something you need to send me separately? Um, I can't remember. To be honest. Mm, <laughs> I'll okay. send it to you separately, and, or I'll send you a link. One of the, yeah, one that would be great. So, just so Essentially, what I, what the chart that I'm referring to is I took um, data from the, you know, the Dow, or the, you know, the broadest US kind of stock market data I could find back to 1800, and so sort of basically chopped it up into 18-year segments and then um, kind of normalized the data so you could kind of combine them uh, to show how the stock market tracks 
the you know the real estate cycle. So you tend to have two halves of about fourteen years with a the market either falling or going sideways in the middle of it during the mid cycle recession, uh, and then having a second half which accelerates into a peak uh, in the way that the real estate cycle does. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. So we'll put show note. We'll put links to everything in the show notes. Um, so media picks. I think Tim's already given his. Unless you I've have something my else. Bolt, so over to you guys. I've just been focusing on really writing and reading around stuff for my book. So yeah, okay. It's a bit. It's a bit dry at the moment. Sure. But I did come across this book called The Zurich Axioms by this chap called Max Gunter. I don't know if you've come across him. He's basically uh, um, in, in, involved in the wealth management industry in in the uh, 1970s i believe or he was a writer writing i think he wrote the book in in the in the 70s or early 80s and he's basically got rules that investors should do to make sure that they don't lose money and that they're kind of cautious and that they you know manage their money appropriately and i thought it was quite interesting because it's sort of illustrates that you know all the best kind of ideas are timeless yes definitely what sorry what's his name Max Gunter. Max Gunter. Okay, I'll put yeah. that in the show notes. Excellent. Mine is going to be a, uh, a a podcast called the Lazarus Heist, and it's on the BBC, but it's also on YouTube as well. It's it's a ten part series, absolutely fantastic. It starts looking at the um, basically the role of North Korea and and um, the nefarious things that they've been up to, and it's honestly it's just a fantastic journey into what what's been going on historically in North Korea, some of the history of North Korea, and how the West has been directly affected by it. And the, you know, you were talking about cyber war and all that sort of stuff. If you listen to this podcast, you will learn much more about what they are actually trying to do and how they've managed to hack into uh, both companies and major institutions so i think it's a it's something to bear in mind for the future in terms of security i know i've heard adverts for insurance for cyber security and i think that's something that's going to be a a continuing problem of course you're going to have bad actors in terms of individuals but when it's an actual nation that's doing it then you've got serious problems because obviously they've got far more resources so it's well worth a listen i think they could have cut it down a little bit it's 10 episodes and possibly there's a bit of froth in it but generally it is it, you you will really enjoy it um and and learn something from it it's it's absolutely fantastic so um so akil just to say thank you so much for coming on the show we definitely want you back on before the book is out and um we, we've got to get some updated views i'm going to be checking out your blog and uh, certainly looking at your twitter feed to see if there's anything that major changes but given what you've said about cycles that they should just continue to play out without interruption so i'm very interested to see how things um go in the financial markets and you know um just good luck with the book and hope you have an enjoyable holiday and and a well-deserved break brilliant thanks so much i've very enjoyed it and happy to come on anytime thanks thank you thank you so much all the very best thank you This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.